0: So, gracious God, in these moments, may your words for us be words of light and life, we pray. Amen. And so, during this season of Lent, which began on Wednesday, we're going to use our Sunday mornings, um, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, to reflect on the last things that Jesus said on the cross, which have become known as the seven last words. Whenever we come to think about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, it's always important to remember that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that all tell the story of Jesus from four different points of view. It's the same story, but the books are not all alike. We learn different things about the crucifixion from the different Gospels. Matthew and Mark are the most similar, and one of the most striking similarities between them is that in their Gospels, Jesus dies alone and abandoned. In both Luke and John, there are a few disciples who remain. There's a group of women who stay there, and the beloved disciple, usually identified as John, And so in order to understand what is happening at the cross, we need to hold together these two pictures in our minds, just as artists over the centuries have painted the crucifixion in two different ways, both of them truthful. One type of image shows the cross with John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, standing by. The second shows Jesus on the cross alone in the dark. Alone in the dark Is a stark image, but one that is crucial for us to consider as we reflect on the death and sacrifice of the cross. But one that's also crucial for us because it's in something of this moment that in our darker moments we find something of a connection that we're able to identify with, perhaps. Now this cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, can come as a bit of a shock given all that has gone before if you're reading through the Gospels. there's the healings and the miracles, the great teaching, the freedom, the hope. And then we get this cry of God forsakenness on the lips of Jesus that led us into something of the horror of that moment that this beloved Son with whom we're told the Father is well pleased, the one who is the proclaimer and bearer of God's kingdom, should now be forsaken and abandoned to a dreadful death in isolation and darkness, is, I suggest, not what we would have expected, given everything that has gone before. So how could there be such injustice? What do we do with the isolated and abandoned Jesus. Well, throughout Christian history, various attempts have been made to qualify and sanitise these moments on the cross. I think it's problematic when we attempt to do that because when we do it, we're always faced with the Gospels and their refusal to let us escape the desolation that we see here. But the first way we try and soften it and cushion it and smooth out the stark challenge of this cry from the cross, is that we assume that these words of Jesus are a conscious and deliberate choice to quote the beginning of Psalm 22, the one before the one that we heard read to us this morning. Now it's entirely understandable and appropriate to make the link between the two. The details of suffering in the psalm resonate so clearly, and it does indeed begin, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. But friends, I tell you, I'm just not sure that as Jesus is being crucified, he would be thinking really clearly about which part of a psalm would be helpful to the people who come after him to make it all fit together. To think that he's thinking that clearly and helpfully in that moment, I think is to dismiss the pain and anguish and despair that he is going through. Now much of the gifts of the psalm, of course, for us, um, are the way in which they express our own struggles when we cannot muster words of our own. Some of you may have found in moments where you are unable to pray, or unable to sing, or unable to work out quite what it is you want to articulate to God, the words of the psalms have been so helpful and they articulate it for us. And Jesus would have known Psalm 22 and he would have often heard it recited in the synagogue. So he may well have been able to recite it himself, but the cry is just that it's a recital, not a helpful teaching point. That Jesus' cry echoes that of the psalmist doesn't lessen the reality of his suffering. Another way in which, perhaps the most common way that we try to soften the difficulties of our reading this morning, to make it easier to swallow, is to dismiss the idea or to turn down the flame on the idea that Jesus is fully human. Jesus is truly human and also truly God, and God, the church has traditionally tried to suggest, is beyond suffering. And all I want to point out this morning is how easy it is for us to declare that Jesus is God and for that to slip into some sort of denial of his humanity and the reality of his suffering. As one who is God, surely he can rise above it when everything we have in the Bible tells us that that is not what is happening here. It's hard to walk that tightrope, to accept Jesus humanity without prejudicing in some way Jesus' deity, but it remains a tightrope we must walk. Psalm 22 and these words of Jesus on the cross do speak of genuine human suffering, of rejection and isolation and humiliation, of feeling abandoned by God. Jesus, like so many others before and since, was spat upon and mocked and abused, and he suffered and died to the sounds of a jeering mob. Jesus, like so many others before and since, was falsely accused and unjustly condemned. He was subjected to a mockery of a trial before a judge more concerned with his own position than justice. Jesus, like so many before and since, was abandoned by his friends at his moment of deepest need. He was left to suffer abuse and torture alone and friendless. Jesus was betrayed by someone close to him. He was given up for money. Unlike most who have been betrayed, Jesus knew what was happening and still offers bread and wine to his betrayer and still washes his feet Jesus, like so many of us in our hours of anguish, felt abandoned by God and heard nothing in reply to his cries except the crushing darkness of extended silence. And like us all, Jesus dies. His cries fell silent and there was no more pain, no more consciousness, no more anything. Jesus' suffering is unique. But before and besides its uniqueness, it is also commonplace human suffering. It is our suffering. It's not just Jesus that puts the reality of suffering before us. If we read through the Bible, we find it very clearly in all sorts of places. In the cry of the Psalms. In the story of Job. In the message of Jeremiah. If nothing else, as I read those parts of Scripture, I've come to know and value... The truth that they speak to me, that I am not alone, and that others have passed this way before me. When we feel hopeless, though, when those around us feel hopeless, it's challenging for our faith. It's challenging for the church. Hopelessness can be also called despair. And the word despair derives from the Latin, which literally means without hope, to give up on hope. I guess in some ways, despair is a direct contrast with our faith. Because the hope that we have in the faithfulness of Christ never dies. But that doesn't help us know what to say to our friend who is despairing. That's it. On the cross, Jesus appears to have experienced the condition of hopelessness. Notice that during his life, Jesus always refers to, in his prayers and in his teaching, God as his Father. In Luke's Gospel, he prays twice from the cross to God as his Father. But in Mark and in Matthew, his only prayer is a despairing cry. To God, is somehow a bit less personal. There's nothing in either Matthew or Mark that softens the desolation. And this word here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the only thing Jesus says from the cross in either of those two gospels. All of the other sayings come from Luke or from John. And because it's so difficult to absorb, we tend to drift or even to flee to some of the softer sayings that we find in Luke. But today, this morning, in this moment, I'm inviting you to dwell just for a moment, perhaps a moment longer than we're really comfortable with, with a sense of abandonment that Matthew places at the heart of their telling of the Easter story. Not to rush through it, and not to seek to explain it, but just to sit with it. Because on that good Friday outside the city walls of Jerusalem the bell tolled for the son of God. Not only did he consciously and deliberately steer toward the pain, he entered into it all the way to the very bottom of despair. What he endured that day was an abandonment so great That for the first time in his human life, he felt himself hopelessly cut off. And this sense of what was happening begins to overwhelm him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, just an hour or so before his betrayal and arrest. The accounts in the Gospels of that struggle in the Garden are striking because of their emphasis on just the intensity of what Jesus is going through as he wrestles with his destiny. It's not just death or even the horrible and humiliating death of crucifixion, but the dread of wrestling with sin and death itself that Jesus faces. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul writes that Jesus was made sin. It's a strange expression, to be made sin. Two clicks on the internet, as always will take you to all kinds of complicated disputes about what it means. I think perhaps Paul meant it to sound a bit strange in order to grab our attention. The verse in 2 Corinthians 5 in full says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is something of what Jesus experiences there in the garden. When he rises to his feet and sets his face like flint and steers toward the pain, never changing his course and following the path all the way down to the depths, to the hell of being utterly abandoned, into the icy grip of sin, into a universe without pity, without mercy and without love. And so what do we do with this truth? Well, I guess, in one sense, the good news is that we're starting with this one, so it's all uphill from here. But what is the message for those of us who hold and know hopelessness all too well? Or who are trying to love our dearest ones through their own period of despair? Perhaps one of the gifts of this word from the cross is how it encourages us to resist the temptation to fix those around us who are struggling. Sometimes our helping doesn't help. Sometimes our helping is as much about our desire to avoid difficult questions and the truths of our own struggle that we might have to face through the lives of our loved ones. Friends, sometimes the power of that despair is quite simply too great to bear without a saviour and a deliverer. It's helpful to know that Jesus went through it so that he understands how we feel. But perhaps even more importantly than that, I think for some of us, and God bless you if this isn't you this morning, but I think for some of us, Understanding this desolation and isolation and abandonment and forsakenness in the story of Jesus is one of the most deepest ways and most profound ways in which we ever connect with him. And so understanding it and sitting with it helps us when we need and want to understand our own struggle in a deeper way. Hell is the ab- absence of hope, the absence of love, the absence of lights, the absence of God. On the cross, Jesus experiences the absence of God and, steering toward the pain, descended into that hell, experiencing the absolute worst. But on the third day, on the third day, he emerges victorious, having conquered sin and death with light and life returning with him. And there is nothing, nothing that any of us will ever know in this world that can negate the victory of Christ over sin and death and hell and all the powers of darkness we could ever conceive. Nothing at all. And so my prayer this morning is that we will hear these words from Romans in that light and in that power today. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so for this, and for the promise of God to walk with us through our darkest moments, we say thanks be.